While Cindy and I were on sabbatical this fall, we rented a little house in Black Mountain, North Carolina to be near our daughter who works at Montreat College nearby. It was an old home, but it had been recently remodeled, and it was very lovely. But as we got into it and began to live into it, we noticed that every time we walked to the bathroom, it felt like we were starting to run downhill. In fact, the floors felt so wonky that I decided to do a little test, and I took a picture of that test. Yeah, I don't know who the contractor was, but uh, I'd get another one uh, next time. Have any of you felt a little bit like that over the last couple of years? It felt like you were kind of meandering, you're not quite sure where you're going, not sure the destination for which you are bound? If you have, let me tell you that I can relate. Because in my 33 plus years as pastor of this church, I have never experienced a season of greater uncertainty. And honestly, this is shared by my colleagues across the country as we have talked with one another. It is just a new reality. We are in uncharted territory, and it sometimes feels like the old playbook just doesn't work anymore. Would any of you admit that that's at least been part of your life these last two years, trying to navigate, trying to figure your way forward? Well, I have good news for us on this Advent Sunday. Rabbi Jesus once taught his disciples, I am the way. He didn't say, I know the way. He didn't say, I can point you to the way. He said boldly, I am the way. But as we're going to see in today's Advent story, even those who encountered the toddler Jesus discovered the way forward and the way home. If you're visiting with us, my name is Mark Toon. I am one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of an Advent series called Christmas Presents. Obviously, Christmas is a lot of wonderful things, feasts and family and festivities and and gift-giving. But you all know that the real Christmas, the heart of real Christmas, is the celebration of the birth of Emmanuel, which is one of the names that is used to describe Jesus. Emmanuel means what? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. My favorite name for Jesus. The miracle of Christmas is that God, the the creator of the universe, came to us as a baby, as a baby born in Bethlehem. Even more miraculous, he continues to be present with us even to this very day through his Holy Spirit. He didn't come and leave. He came, and 2,000 years later, his Holy Spirit is still in us, still with us, still working. We're still experiencing the presence of God. And when we understand that, when we really embrace that, it makes all the difference to us as we're trying to figure our way forward in this crazy world. Last week we talked about how the presence of Jesus offers hope for the hopeless. This morning we're going to talk about how the presence of Jesus, even for a meandering, aimless soul, offers a way for the wayward. 
Our text this morning comes from a very familiar passage out of Matthew, chapter 2. Would you turn with me, if you will? It's a, it's a familiar story, by the way, but it's not nearly as familiar as you think it is. In fact, probably nearly everything you think you know about this story is wrong. We call it the tale of three kings, but they weren't kings. We don't know if there were three of them, uh, and despite the beautiful nativity scene that you'll see in our foyer back there, they did not show up at Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. In fact, they showed up about two years later to a little apartment that Joseph and Mary were renting in Bethlehem, and they visited the two-year-old toddler Jesus. Matthew calls these visitors magi, and we know those as wise men, but the actual derivation of the word we use for magician, magi, magicians, because they were pagan astrologers. They were from the east, probably an area called Persia, or today we would call it modern-day Iran. They weren't Jews. They were magicians. They were astrologers. They believed that the stars in the heavens guided human destiny, the planets and the alignment of all of that. That's what guided human destiny. So in short, these are the most unlikely group of visitors who would ever come looking for a Jewish Messiah. But they did. And their adventure changed the course of their life, literally, and it can change the course of ours as well. So join with me as we read this familiar, but not so familiar story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Our daughter Rachel is a very outdoorsy person. If you know her, you know that to be true. She owns a cabin on an acre of woods kind of out in the middle of nowhere. She has to drive eight miles to get to her job, but she drives up into the woods on this really windy road, and she just loves it. And she and her roommate often are out traipsing around in those woods. A few weeks ago, 
<clears throat> they were hiking uh, rather deep in the forest along the path when suddenly they heard a spectacular commotion ahead of and up above them in the tree. And as they were standing there on the pathway, suddenly a large creature fell out of the tree onto the path below. It was a bear. About 30 feet away. Uh, but that wasn't it. There was still commotion going on, and shortly a smaller creature fell down, and another creature fell down. Two cubs. It was a mama bear and her two cubs standing on the trail 30 feet ahead of where Rachel and her roommate Kristen were headed. Kristen is a Chicago girl. So her first instinct, what do you think? She turned around and started to run. And given that she is a professional soccer player, she could run. But before she could get away, Rachel laid her hands on both shoulders and she said, Don't move. Because she knew that running is the worst possible thing that you could do in that circumstance. So they turned back around, faced the three bears, and slowly began to back their way down the pathway until they were able to return safely to home by another way. When the Magi left King Herod on the final leg of their journey to Bethlehem, we are told that they went on their way. And then when they left Bethlehem, having encountered the child, they were warned in a dream not to return to murderous King Herod. And so we are told that they departed to their country by another way. Turns out that the story of Magi at its heart is a story about seeking God's direction and following it. Seeking God's way and then going that way. And of course, if you are a believer in God, a believer in, in a God who loves you and has a plan for your life, has a direction that He wants you to take, then surely this would matter to you. Surely if God's got a, a way that He wants you to walk, then discovering that way and following that way, you would think, well, that probably makes sense. God probably knows best of all. As a, as a matter of fact, the very act of becoming a Christian starts with a kind of a religious word that we use called repentance. Metanoia in the Greek. The word repentance means literally you're walking one direction, you stop, you turn around, and you walk another way toward Jesus. If you're a disciple of Christ, it would seem to me that the constant question that ought to be guiding your life is, am I going the way of Jesus? Am I going the way that God wants me to go, in the direction He wants me to head? And so that's my question for all of us this morning, your, your, you and, and myself as well. Does this matter to us? Does it matter to you? Or do you feel honestly right now like that golf ball that's kind of meandering about, rather aimless, rather uncertain, not sure where the heck you're headed? If that's the case for you in this season of your life, I've got some really great news. These open-hearted pagans have a lot to teach us about how to discern and follow God's way forward. So let's hear what these astrologers have to say to us this morning. First of all, they saw God's hand in the circumstances of their lives. That seems rather basic, but I really want us to pay attention to that. They, they, they didn't just see the circumstances, they saw God's hand at work in there. Christians, above all, ought to be those who don't believe in anything called coincidence. I mean, we claim that we have a, a God who is sovereign, a God who is watching over every aspect of the universe, including our lives. 
This ought to be a great comfort to us to say, I have a sovereign God who is truly in control of my life. His hand guides me. His hand is directing me as I go forward. We ought not to believe that things happen by coincidence. One of the great gifts of the Apostle Paul in the Bible is a passage out of the book of Romans, chapter 8, 28. Many of you probably know this passage very well. And we know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Isn't that a wonderful promise? If you love God, if you are called according to His purpose, He will work everything in your life for good. He will use your everyday circumstances, for instance. And ordinarily, that's what He will use, although we sometimes forget that even then, in those things, God is speaking to us. He uses our experiences, our schooling, our parents, our children, our friends. He uses our work and, and our struggles and our loss. All of these things that are just part of life. It's actually God at work guiding and directing and shaping us. The Magi were just going about their ordinary work. They were studying the heavens. They were doing their observations when they made their life-changing discovery. When they realized that what they were seeing, that somehow God was at work in that. And they set out to find Him. God's guiding hand can be seen in just the ordinary circumstances of our lives, and I think we sometimes forget that. But sometimes God works through spectacular things, too. In the case of the Magi, of course, it was a miracle star that guided their journey for two years. Our culture poo-poos such things. Our culture says all of that miraculous stuff is just myth, and really all that matters, all that is real, is the material world and science. That is our new, our new religion. And yet, if we believe in a God who raised His Son from the dead, then surely He's capable of some other miracles along the way as well. And even today. We're not those who believe that God stopped doing the miraculous 2,000 years ago. We believe that God is still very much at work today and that He does miraculous things, spectacular things in order to inspire and guide and encourage us. Just this last week, I spoke to someone who has a, a child who has had severely flat feet all of her life, so much that she requires regular medical care and specialized attention. She has been the subject of a lot of prayers from a lot of people. And they returned this week to the doctor for yet another examination. And here's what the doctor told her mom. She said, I cannot explain it, but your child has grown arches. I don't need to see her again. That's spectacular, don't you think? That's miraculous, the God of miracles. So we have a God who normally works through ordinary means, sometimes works through spectacular means, but here's something the story teaches us even more astoundingly. He can also work through evil means. He can also work through malevolent circumstances. The wise men naively approached well, the most dangerous guy in the kingdom to ask directions to find this child king. Herod was an evil awful man. I'm sure you already know this. He was the Romans puppet king of the Jews. He wasn't even Jewish, but he was wily and he was paranoid and he was vicious and he would destroy any threat to his power. Herod killed his wife, 
his favorite wife. He was sad about it, but he did it. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his uncle. He murdered several of his sons. Anyone that he considered to be a threat to his throne, he would destroy them. And so when the Magi come to his palace seeking directions on how to find the newborn king of the Jews, Herod was not pleased. When Matthew writes that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, you can say, I'll bet. Because anytime Herod was upset, everybody got upset. No one was more interesting and interested in finding this newborn king than Herod, but for very different murderous reasons. And so he ordered his Bible scholars to come up some, with some clues as to where the child might be found, and, and they came through. They found that the prophet Micah had predicted that the Messiah would be indeed born in Bethlehem. So Herod sent the Magi to find him, purportedly that he might worship him, but really so that he might kill him. It was pure evil. Pure evil. We have pure evil still to this day. Herod manipulated good-hearted men for evil purposes, but God outmaneuvered even old Herod and used his wicked intent for God's good and glory. And I find this to be a great encouragement that God can work even through the malicious experiences of our lives. Because every single one of us, you're truly included, your pastor included, has dark stuff, evil stuff, sinful stuff that is a part of our past. Stuff about which we, we regret, we have shame about it, it still might even linger in our, in our hearts at times. And maybe you have been a victim of wickedness, of evil that has stained you or shamed you or scarred your life. The incredible good news of the advent of Jesus to this world is that in Christ all of that is forgiven and that every one of those pains can be redeemed. The Holy Spirit can take that which is most broken in your past and redeem it and reshape it and reclaim it for your good future. And nothing is wasted, not a single scar, not a single tear, nothing of your hard past is wasted. And, and perhaps best of all, even that which is evil, even that which is broken, God is able to take all of that and use it to guide, to direct, to shape, to prepare us for His glory, His kingdom. Maybe that is something worth celebrating to you. I find that to be a great comfort in my own life. So, the Magi saw God's hand guiding them through the various circumstances of their life. The Magi, secondly, the second thing that the Magi did is that they surrendered to King Jesus. When we read about their encounter with Jesus in Bethlehem, here literally is what they did when they came into the presence of that child. The Bible says that they laid face down in worship. They surrendered to King Jesus. This must have been quite a sight, as it is even now. <laughs> Presumably, these wealthy noblemen had prepared for the moment when they would meet the child that they had come two years to, to discover. Presumably they had glorious brocaded silken robes that they wore worthy of the moment. And yet when they walked into that little house, they laid down all of them in their beautiful robes 
in their fa- on their faces in the dust before a very puzzled two-year-old and some rather bemused parents, I would imagine. I find that story interesting. It is even gracious that, that the Lord would demonstrate to us this first great act of worship in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. These pagan astrologers, these magicians, these men whose ordinary practices were condemned by the Old Testament. And yet God invites them into the story. And in so doing, they show us, these pagans show us how we ought to respond when we come into the presence of Christ in our own lives, when we encounter Jesus. There's more though to this that it's easy to miss the first time around. In the first part of the story when the Magi show up at Herod's palace, three times Matthew refers to Herod as king. King Herod, Herod the king, the king. Three times he calls them that. But after the Magi discover Jesus in Bethlehem, after they fall down on their faces in worship before him, Matthew never refers to Herod as king again. Ever. Now there's a new king in town, and it is this two-year-old Jesus. When the Magi bowed before him, Herod's throne... Uh, crown was torn from his head he surrendered his authority over them these heartfelt worshipers laid everything they had their finest treasures and even more importantly their very lives literally in front of King Jesus they surrendered to him if you want to go the way of Jesus may I just say as clearly as I know how this is the non-negotiable posture it is the posture of the supplicant It is the posture of of every person bowing before Christ and saying, you are king and I am not. You are the Lord of my life and I am not. Everything I am, everything I have, I lay before you. Every other claimant to the throne of my life is a counterfeit and a usurper. That's what it means to be a Christian. Anything less than that is utterly inadequate. It is declaring, it is surrendering, it is affirming, it is worshiping Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, the Magi saw God's hand in their circumstances and that guided them. When they encountered Jesus, they surrendered to King Jesus. And here's the third thing that they teach us. They took one obedient step at a time. One obedient step at a time at a time. I don't understand the nature of this moving star. I don't know whether it was a comet. I don't know whether it was an alignment of planets. I don't know if it was a a miraculous star appointed for this purpose. But here's what I do know. There is a difference between plugging an address into your GPS and listening to the directions that are being shared with you by a friend who's sitting next to you. In, in the first case, we, we plug in the directions and we know our destination. We know when we're going to get there. We know how long it will take for us to get there. We know the, where the traffic jams are. We know where the speed traps are. Everything is clear. The entirety of the destination is laid out before us. In the second case, we simply listen to someone we trust as they tell us one step at a time. Turn here. Go forward. Slow down. One step at a time. When God called Abraham to go to the promised land, he didn't say, and here's where you'll find it on a map. He said, go to the 
land that I will show you. When the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they followed the, the pillar of fire by night and, and cloud by day. When the pillar moved, they moved. When the pillar stopped, they stopped. And even so, the Magi, when they saw a star, they began to follow. When the star moved, they followed it. When it turned, it, it followed. When it stopped, they followed it. They did not know where it would lead. They didn't know how long it would take. All they knew is they had enough light for the next step. Until finally, two years later, they arrived. And by the way, when they left, they started one step in a different direction. Did you notice? They, they were told in a dream, don't go back to Herod. And so, in obedience, they said, all right, Lord, where do you want us to go? And they said, go this way. Take this step in this new direction. I am always a little cautious about saying God always does something, but I think God always leads us in this way. I think God always leads us one step at a time. He doesn't lay out the itinerary for us. He doesn't say, this is what you're going to encounter along the way. And thank God He doesn't. I don't think we could bear it, actually. I'm grateful that what, what we have is really enough light for the next step forward. And if you can learn to be content to focus not on the future, not on the destination, not on the itinerary, but rather on God's next one step for you, instead of insisting on the rest, I think you learn to live in a greater sense of faith instead of fear and frustration. We were on a family reunion in Iowa, Lake Okaboja. How many have ever been to Lake Okaboja? All, all, none of you. <laughs> and uh, we decided to, to make a day trip to the Twin Cities with a car caravan. So we started off, and Connie's, Cindy's sister Connie was riding, driving behind us. But suddenly along the way, she, she just disappeared. So we slowed down, waiting for her to catch back up. No Connie, no show. So Cindy got on the phone, and she said, Connie, where are you? She said, oh, we just stopped to take uh, some pictures, but it's okay. We're back on the highway, and we're catching up with you. Cindy said, but where are you? She said, well, we're, we're just passing um, exit number 85. Cindy said, Connie, we just passed exit number 55. Well, tell me, what is the next exit that you see? She waited a moment. She said, exit number 86. Cindy said, Connie, you are heading west. She said, no, 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 I'm sure that we got on the right ramp. Everything is okay. She said, no, no, Connie, you didn't. You are headed west. She said, it, just be patient. We will catch up with you. Finally, Cindy said, Connie, listen to me. You will never catch us. You are going the wrong way. It's amazing that even when evidence suggests otherwise, how we can insist on pursuing a road that doesn't take us to the place we say we want to go. The way of Jesus begins with one step in His direction. One step. You don't have to see the whole thing. You don't have to have the itinerary because Jesus will call you. Jesus will direct you. Jesus will give you enough light to guide you one next step at a time. Just enough to see but not so much to, to not need to trust. So I'm, I would ask you again, are you in a season of aimlessness where you're not quite certain where you're going, feeling a little bit like that golf ball? The great news of this story is that God is in control. He is sovereign. He cares about you. He has a life plan for you. And if you open your eyes to 
see the circumstances of your life as God's work in your life, the mundane, the miraculous, and even the malevolent, that is an amazing discovery. If you surrender yourself to, to Jesus, truly turn over your life instead of trying to cling to it as the one who will be the Lord, if you confess Him as King of kings and Lord of lords and put the very best in your hands, in His hands, and, and, and then if you just take one next step, just one next step forward, this is the way, this is the way of Jesus. And if you find it a little hard, a little daunting, then take heart, because actually Jesus found it a little daunting as well. On the night in which he was betrayed, he was kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane. He was begging the Father not to take him in the way that he believed he was to go, the way of the cross. He begged his Father to find another way forward. But in the end, he surrendered. He surrendered to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he went the way of the cross, and in so doing, he saved us and redeemed us and has called us to himself. And this meal is a reminder of that great gift. So I invite you to come and let us dine at the table of the Lord. Let us pray. God, thank you that though at times we feel uncertain and meandering and aimless, that we can trust you, that we can listen to that still small voice that says, this next thing, just this next thing, trust me here. And we are reminded of that when we share this meal, uh, a demonstration of your son's willingness to be obedient to you even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we come to this meal as an encouragement, as sustenance, as, uh, as a reminder of our call to trust our sovereign God and our saving Lord. And we thank you that you are going to be with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.